Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. Today's highlight episode is the first in a series of shorter podcasts featuring our 2012 MFA and BFA competition winners. Now, our first guest in that series is going to be Carol Salisbury, who had a background in fashion and worked in L.A. for a number of years before eventually deciding to commit to fine arts and going back to school. And again, we talked at great length about what it was like having a career that spanned a number of years and then deciding to jump into fine art making and specifically small metals. And so we talked a great deal about our processes with that, some of our other interests in digital printmaking, and generally speaking, the larger ideas behind our work. Of course, it was very interesting, and so we hope that you enjoy the interview today. Of course, if you've never heard of Studio Break, we are a collection of podcasts and interviews with a number of different artists. If you go to studiobreak.com, there's a number of different slideshows and blog entries for each of the artists. Again, you can link and go to the iTunes store where you can also subscribe. Again, if you happen to like it, we would hope that you'd leave us some comments and feedback. We'd really appreciate it. And also, you can subscribe to the blog. Aside from that, we are also on Twitter, so please follow us at Studio Break on Twitter and like us on Facebook, where we also provide a number of updates and previews for upcoming guests. Now that we have that out of the way, here is Carol Salisbury. Welcome back to Studio Break. I'm here with uh, Carol Salisbury this morning. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. And it's it's a pleasure to have you on and included uh, in this group of uh, other other BFA and MFA members. We've got a nice variety of work and kind of one of the reasons that I was compelled by yours. Um, but, you know, if we could just start out, as always, just to get a little bit of a background and your sense of uh, coming into your investigations into the arts. Well, I was... I was I lived in Los Angeles, California for the first 55 years of my life. I was out of it very little. So I moved in my late 50s I decided to go back to school again and get my BFA. So I picked an art school in art college in Portland, Oregon, the Oregon College of Art and Craft. And it's a wonderful, wonderful school. I, it was a perfect environment for me. I was given a lot of freedom. And right after that, I went into um, an MFA program after I received my BFA. Um, when I was a kid, um, as I was mentioning earlier, I was extremely nearsighted when I was born. And it was very difficult for me to see distances. Drawing seemed to be like a really easy way for me to be able to control my environment. And they didn't realize I could really see very well until I was around six and I got my first pair of glasses. But up until the time I could hold a pencil, I was always drawing, doing something like that. So it was just a natural part of my life. It isn't something I made a decision about. It was just there. What was it like then, And I guess, in terms of kind of coming back to that? Um, you know, what, what, what compelled you to go back and uh, study that? Um, and, and I mean, was your, was your work prior to that, uh, in, in art at all, or was it something unrelated? Well, because of, you know, the times that I grew up in, art wasn't really considered to be a worthy profession. Mm -hmm. And my parents, my mother encouraged that my father didn't. He was more practical. I ended up being a clothing designer and manufacturer in L.A. for 20 years. Um, then I decided, after I didn't do that anymore, I decided to make art a more 
more important part of my life, that it was something I had to do, just the way writers have to write. You have a compulsion to do things, and that's what I had a compulsion to do. The medium I picked was metal because it was a difficult one, and I thought it would be interesting. I'm, I'm drawn toward things that are multifaceted, and they're not just doing the same repetitive thing all the time. I like to move back and forth in between things. And in my earlier years, I had gone to college, and I had studied fine arts, drawing and painting. And I figured out after doing so much clothing and everything that I was really a 3D person rather than a 2D person. There's also personal reasons why this happened. but So after I discovered that, it's just I took to metal like crazy. It was just, it was not difficult for me. Um, as I mentioned before, the first time I saw solder flow, I thought it was the most beautiful, magical thing I had ever seen. And because metal is so complex and there's so many different ways you can express yourself in it, it gave me a lot to explore. Because when I was a designer, I was doing a lot of things. You weren't just doing one thing. And I need to have many different things to be able to move within so that I'm not bored by it. And metal has never bored me to this day. Was it um, something that was just kind of like being in a, uh, I don't know, just like a candy store then in terms of coming back to it after a big yes. break? and. I looked at it like it was a toy store. Okay, it was my own <laughs> private toy chest and all these little tools and stuff for my toys I could play with. That's exactly the way I saw it. And the thing is that, you know, I, I taught young people in my GTA program. And I can honestly say that, and I was like this too when I was that age, so I have a great deal of sympathy for it. But just relax and have fun and don't put yourself on the line all the time every time you do something. You know, you're not going to get it right the first time, but, you know, you just keep at it. And the most important thing for learning something like metal or any difficult process is that you're in the studio all the time. And when you're young, you have so many other interests. Now, that's not to put down people that are young. I've known some people that were incredibly gifted and incredibly focused at a very, very early age. I wasn't one of them. I had fun. So I told my person one time I wasn't paying attention the first 55 years of my life. <laughs> when I went back to school, it was like a relief. It was almost like stepping out of your adulthood mm-hmm. to go back and play and recreate the childhood that you wanted, which is what I did. And I'm glad I did it. Well, and so when you started then, I mean, were you fully devoted then to, to metalsmithing in terms of what you wanted to do or... Was it something that you kind of continue to do drawing and, and other things as well? No. I totally went hardcore um, metalsmithing for like, oh, at least seven or eight years, maybe longer. And I did nothing else. And what happened was in the uh, when I was getting ready for my MFA thesis show, one of my professors, John Hobner, says to me, well, you know, it's hard to make enough metal to fill up a gallery, so you got to have something to stick on the wall. You <laughs> wanted photographs, and I thought, well... Eh. And then I had that summer off just before my um, MFA thesis year began. So I started playing around in Photoshop. And I started creating these really weird patterns, overlays and everything, and I was having a lot of fun doing it. And if you're having fun doing something, you should keep doing it. Because, sure. you know, why be miserable? 
So I was having so much fun doing this. I didn't go into the studio that much. And then as luck would have it, well, luck, I don't know. I fell when I came back in my first semester of my thesis year, I fell and broke my arm in two places. It was my right arm. So I show up at school, you know, with two black eyes, a smashed nose, um, and my arm in a sling. And John looks at me and he goes, should we be worried about this? I says, no, I'll be fine. And then I just started doing a lot of drawing, too. I did metal work for my thesis, but I also emphasized the drawing because it was a healing gesture to my arm. So what's really interesting about this is I started out 2D, I went to 3D, and through circumstances, I came back to 2D. Now I'm trying to mesh the two. Yeah, and I, th- I think that kind of becomes pretty apparent. Um, and, and it's something that I was just saying to you, you know, just a few minutes ago. I really like, um, especially like the, the formal quality. There's there's kind of like a, I don't know, like a thin or stretched out kind of look just because there's a lot of those, you know, really kind of fine lines in, in a lot of the work. Um but, you know, just to kind of clarify, too, what, what, what are some of your ideas in terms of, you know, what you're interested in in terms of processing this? Because we, we talked about a little bit, too, how those don't always stay the same or you're integrating new ideas as you're working through it. But could you just give us a little bit of an idea in terms of some of the things that you're working through when you're thinking about these pieces? Yeah. When I started out, um, I would say in my BFA thesis, I was concerned with, neurobiology more than I am right now. I was really concerned with um, aggression and why people behave the way they do and what the influences are, the social, whatever, and biological influences behavior. So I read obsessively about that. Then I started thinking, just before I started my MFA thesis year, that everything is conflicting. Even the experts are all arguing. They discount theories, and then, you know, 20 years later, no, this is right, this is wrong. Nobody agrees on anything. So then I realized that the quest for human knowledge is really an ongoing one and that we will never be able to resolve anything. And that's sort of where I'm at right now, theory-wise. Mm-hmm. I think about, um, I think about the human species, I think very much in terms of being a species, um, soon to be a failed species if it doesn't get its act together. Um, we're one, I, I say this all the time, I'm a little speck on a little speck in this huge, vast thing that we don't even know what it is, really. We can't even define it. So then you start you know, reading about um, theoretical physics and all that sort of stuff, and I read it from a layman's standpoint. I certainly don't have a math mind. But then you realize that we just, we're driven, well, I think I said it in my artist statement, that we're driven to seek knowledge constantly, and yet it'll always elude us. The ultimate, the ultimate core of what we're seeking will always elude us because there will always be something under that and under that and under that. And that's driving a lot of this work where I layer things obsessively. I'm very obsessive. And I've always been taught that, you know, you pull away from that. And I've learned to embrace it and use it, which is very freeing for me. So the obsessiveness is like a, is like a, it, it represents the obsessiveness that humankind, humankind has for seeking answers to everything. And I said this before, I didn't write it in my artist statement, but 
when we became human, when we acquired consciousness, is also when we had this sense of the future and the fact that individuals, we might not be there. So the whole element of death, I mean, these are important things because I'm not the first person to say this. It's an extremely um, motivating factor in everyone's life, the fact that someday we will not be here. And what do we do when we're here? So I don't know if I explained that right, but it's kind of confusing. You know, you, you sort of, an artist doesn't always know exactly what their motivations are when they start something. They just have a compulsion to do it. And maybe halfway through it, or maybe even when they're completed with it, they understand it better as they reflect on it. We're not always in, in complete, we're, we're not in contact with our subconscious, but a lot of what we do is driven by our subconscious. It's kind of like a balancing act, I think. You know, if it's something where you're so in control of something, it doesn't tend to work out. And I think that on the flip side of that, it's just entirely unplanned. You know, it's something that becomes difficult. But but it seems also that, you know, in talking about the intensive way that you came to, to exploring metalsmithing, especially, um, there's maybe kind of like a, a language or like a, a things that you become interested in formally or, you know, a process that you wind up starting to, to get invested in. Um, is, is there anything that you can think of that, that is, I don't know, that, that serves as your starting out point in terms of, you know, what you might be pursuing in a particular piece? Is there a particular process that you gravitate towards or how does that work? Well, if it's metal smithing, I have to move my hands. I don't have to have an idea, but I have to move my hands. And eventually the idea will manifest. And I might not even be continue working on what I'm working. It's just, or, you know, walking is very good for releasing ideas in the mind. But with me, if I move my hands and just work with metal, and like I said, maybe not, not that object, but the idea, and sometimes the image will just materialize, and I know what I want to do. With um, the, the pieces that I'm doing, the 2D pieces, I just start in Photoshop, and I start flipping things around and layering and layering and layering until I see something interesting, and then I stop. And then I take those pieces, and without any really preconceived ideas of what I want it to look like, because I never know what it's going to look like in the end, and it can be totally transformed. I just start working with it, and then all of a sudden you know it's done. And until that point, you're like, oh, my God, what is this? What have I done? <laughs> but you just keep doing it, okay, and then eventually it works out. And this is really interesting to me. I would say the one thing, when I, uh, when I finished my MFA, one of my professors took me out to dinner. It was really sweet. And she was also the chair of my theory name, Gita Westergaard. And she says, what was the most important thing you learned in, you know, your graduate year, your graduate school? And I would say it's to look, to look at what's happening and to respond to that and to not plan everything because I was an obsessive planner, even with my metal work. And now I do metal work without planning, which is kind of terrifying because sure. sometimes it doesn't allow you to do certain things, but you just accommodate for it. I think it's better to work intuitively because it is more in contact with that part of you that is creative. I used to plan things obsessively on graph paper down to the millimeter because that was my comfort zone. But then I realized that it really wasn't a lot of fun to make it because I already knew exactly what it was going to look like. 
So I stopped doing that. So now what I have is a surprise, and I like that much better. Sure. Well, and I guess specifically because we just kind of ended talking with um, some of the the work that you're starting as, uh, you know, digital process and then, you know, drawing into these images later. What are are the images um, based off of? Well, right now, um, I spent the summer, the piece I'm doing right now is very much like bones, bones and flesh. And I spent the summer working with skulls, doing Mm -hmm. skull mounts for the Natural History Museum here. And the colors and the patterns are so beautiful. And it really emphasized to me how we are all part of the same process. How we're such a, I mean, we had human skulls, we had elephant skulls. There's all this incredible similarity between everything. Everything is is unified in the way it's designed initially. And it's beautiful, or the way it functions, the way the you know, I'm not going to get into that subject, but it's really, really beautiful. If you look at the skull, I mean, I just went crazy over the skull of a jackrabbit. And you at least see jackrabbit. Yeah, it's cute, you know? <laughs> but <Sure>. the skull <laughs> is so beautiful. It's like lace work. The nasal cavities of these skulls were like lace work. It's so absolutely gorgeous, and it was the colors... And so the piece I'm doing now, I didn't even start out thinking about that, but all of a sudden it's been transformed to the surface of these skulls because that's what's in my mind right now. So I never know what's going to happen. Could you talk a little bit about, like, say, for example, this piece, uh, Spiral Machine? Are, are you kind of, you know, using using your skills to kind of make this almost like vessel form and then... I, like I have no idea because I'm again I'm I'm a silly painter sometimes most of the time I'm a silly, silly. painter so <laughs> so when I'm looking at this I'm, I I can kind of see that there, there's an area of the piece that is constructed with a uh, um, you know torches and solder and then kind of um, these kind of more uh, flowy areas that are that are kind of more manipulated maybe with your hands I don't I don't know um, but could you describe that process of how, like how you're actually making that piece. Well, I was trying to do something very formal on the inside because that would represent the core, which we'll never understand. That generates the world that we live in. And the rest of it is sort of a reflection of the chaos that we experience. Um, I want to say on a daily basis, that sounds really corny, but it's just this, it, it it's a thing that flows from it, but it's chaotic. So I don't see... I see one being an element of the other. What those little things are is they're brass wires, and then I brazed on the ends of them, and they're tied to little branches. So everything is a branch, and I curved it all because I wanted it to spiral because spiral is sort of like the the form of all life, and even the double heel is a spiral. So, And then what it does is it obliterates. It obliterates the text underneath it, which is... A lot of what I do with the 2D drawings, I'm obliterating the text because the text is always contradictory. Words are misleading, and the truth lies somewhere else. But it's the way that we communicate with each other is inaccurate and fallible as it is. So the truth lies maybe more in the intuitive realm rather than in words. Sure. There is no truth. 
I think, too, one of the things that I really, I, I think, makes sense about that is that when you, you really do gain a sense of that idea of this core, this this thing that's almost like a machine that's driving everything else, but then also that, you know, there's all of this randomness around it, or, or I don't know what appears to be randomness around it. I don't know. I, I think that in terms of some of the ideas that you're talking about in in terms of the larger picture, um, I think it, I think it's a very fitting kind of relationship that you have there. Well, thank you. And um, and especially that idea of it emanating, you know, or, or kind of dealing with like the the center too, you know, the way that it um, that it's drawn out from there. And again, I, I think some of the other metalworking pieces kind of have, you know, that like a, something that that works out similarly in terms of having something that's a, a central vessel or central form, and then these areas that are kind of moving around it. It's always interesting because to hear other people talk about your work because you don't see everything. You know, you, you do it, and it's there, but you don't always interpret it exactly the way somebody else interprets it. But I would say that's very accurate. That's just something in my head that I haven't, you know, you got this soup in the back of your head. <laughs> you draw from that, and you're not always totally sure what's in the soup. Right. Well, and, and I think it's interesting, too, um, bring it back to that, that relationship with the words, because one of the things that, that I think people notice is that, you know, you, the way that you describe that, you really do obliterate, you know, any, any readability of what it is, any kind of text that's in there. I think of it in terms of how I, I keep going back to the idea, you know, that we are, mankind is not, it's special in the sense that we have consciousness, but we also have a responsibility and I'm not an environmentalist or anything like that. I guess in some senses I am, but I'm certainly not hardcore. We need to understand, we need to have a better, um, like a respect for what we are and where we are and what we are a part of. And I'm not really doing environmental work. I don't mean to be interpreted like that, but a lot of the harm that we cause ourselves is due to a misunderstanding of our place. We're not the center of everything. Our intelligence gives us the ability to be able to not destroy the world, but it also gives us the ability to destroy it. So we're a unique species in that sense, but I don't think we're more important. In looking at those skulls, you really see the commonality that we have with everything. And, you know, we're, we're a speck. We're a speck. We think that humankind is very pretentious about that. It's very um, egocentric. And I think that in order to be less self-destructive, we need to appreciate. I mean, look, American Indians, the way they lived, they were so in tune with everything around them, and they realized they were a part of it. And they kept the land, honestly, and we don't. And all this doesn't mean Jack, sh- excuse me, I can't use that word. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything if we destroy our environment. The earth will go on, but we may not, because... Survival always favors the thing that doesn't harm nature. And if we're harming nature, we're threatening our very survival. I think it, we, we argue in all this conflict on this planet, and it has very little to do with our place in it, our place in the universe, the multiverse, whatever it is. We're, I just think we need to re- have a, more, a, a greater respect for what we are and a more honest assessment of it. Well, and and I think I might have completely botched um, my my line of inquiry there. I think in terms of listening to you, you describe all of that, it's like a level of acceptance of all of that to me when I see the work. There's a lot of 
complexity built into simplicity. Yes. And I think that I think that comes off so well. Viewers might see this as as just being this um, overly simplified thing or something, but the reality is is that it, it it's very complex also, and so there's a real nice duality um, with that relationship. And I think that reflects a lot of the ideas that you're talking about. You know, live living in in a in a way that respects that. And I, I really like the way that 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 relates to the the visual and and relationship of the work. Well, thank you. Going back to metal work, um, I'm in the process of applying for uh, Fulbright to go to Finland to study mechanisms. I'm fascinated with mechanism, and I want my next body of work after the drawings to be um, these machines that repair the world. And I thought I would do these crazy graph drawings of them and then execute them and somehow integrate the 2D with the 3D more, which is what I really need to do to keep my mind active. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm looking forward to those pieces. I just started doing mechanisms in grad school, and I'm totally fascinated by them. I love them. It's like you don't know if it's going to work or it's not going to work or what's going to happen, and then you take the tape off and it works, and it's like a Christmas present. So, And I like movement because nothing is, stat- nothing is static. Everything moves, and that's fascinating to me. And I don't, I've come to the point where I don't like an object just sitting there. It needs to be interactive in some way or a surprise, something inside that reveals something else. Because everything I've ever done, I realized, and this was pointed out to me too by one of my professors, everything is transparent or you can look through it or it's multi-layered or one thing is inside another, inside another, inside another, because that's really the way I perceive life. Sure. I, I, you know, I think I think it's fascinating, and and I guess you know, just a, I think we only have time for maybe uh, um, just a little bit more. But um, so, have you been preparing then in terms of um, your you know doing research in terms of the, the kind of things that would happen and if you get this this Fulbright? Um, I sort of like have it in the back of my head. I can work on one thing and like start creating another in my head because mm-hmm. it's an offshoot of something. I've looked at old um, mechanisms. There's a wonderful website for old mechanisms on the Internet, um, old machines uh, that do things. And I sort of like I'm trying to integrate the ideas, what these things would look like. Um, and I'm starting to get a clear idea that I don't have to actually work on them at that moment. When I work on the drawings, it gives me a lot of time to think. And I can generate images in my head of what I want them to look like. Um so that's the way I'm working with that. And you were talking about going to Finland for this? Yeah, there's an institute there that um, I go to. The, I graduated from the University of Kansas, and there's an institute there that um, we have a student exchange program with. And I met the instructor when he came out here for a couple of weeks, and he's really a wonderful gentleman. His name's Emo, and it's at Latvia University in Finland. And I had emailed him that he's a mechanism whiz. He's helped, he helped me a lot when he was out here with these crazy ninjas. And I just think that I need to pursue that part because also you know, the rest of the middle smithing, I kind of, I don't know everything but I know enough to be able to express myself. But the mechanisms I only can go so far with it here. I need to go abroad and study and I believe he's the right person to do it with. Yeah, it's, I mean, it sounds really, really exciting. Uh, hopefully it's uh, like, you know, 
Playland times 10. Oh, listen. (laughs) (laughs) And what's really interesting about metalsmithing, that may totally be this way with other things too, is that when you study in another part of the world, their systems are totally different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, even regionally in this country, metalsmithing is handled very differently from one area to the other. And so you bring, you know, I I never wear ear things in the studio unless I'm making a lot of noise. You have to have earplugs because I want to hear everything that's going on around me because I may pick up something. And I do very frequently. And if I see somebody working really, this is an important thing too. If you if somebody is a student, they have a wonderful opportunity to observe what's going on around them. Pick the people that they respect and go and watch what they're doing. And most people will be really happy to share their information with you. So that's what I did. I followed people around like a crazy person. <laughs> and I would ask them, you know, what's this and what's that? And they were very accommodating and very kind. So I took all that information and then I added to it some tweaks of my own. And, um, you know, Bill Smith these tricks. I'm sure that almost all the crafts. Um, people that become skillful at them become skillful at them because they worked hard, but they've also learned the tricks. Well, excellent stuff. It's it's a pleasure to have you on uh, Studio Break. Thanks again for taking the time today, and it was great talking to you. Okay, well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again to Carol for joining us today. Once again, you can find Carol's email on this blog entry, so please go ahead and contact her there with any inquiries about her work. And as we stated earlier, Carol is the first in a series of MFA and BFA competition winners from the year 2012, so please stay tuned for that. We've got some exciting work to come. As always, if you're interested in finding out more about me, your interviewer, David Linaway, you can check out my artwork at davidlinaway.com. And, of course, if you like Studio Break, we would really appreciate you following the blog, subscribing to us on iTunes, um, following us on Facebook at Studio Break, and then also on Twitter at Studio Break. So please go ahead and check us out there. Again, if you enjoy any of these interviews, again, we've got a number of them up at studiobreak.com. We'd hope that you'd share with others, your friends, colleagues, peers, students, whomever. As always, our music was found today at freemusicarchive.org where they have thousands of songs that you can download all for free, full albums. Our music today, Jazaz Shine, and taking us out is... Krakatoa's Silver Saffron. That's a mouthful. Once again, you can go there and get all sorts of free music. It's fun to browse, so go ahead and check that out. Well, that's all the show we have for today. We'll talk to you real soon.